Hello there. Welcome to the show. I've been sort of experimenting with different types of episodes and shows for about the last two months. Recently, I've been having a lot of guests on the show at this point. I feel as if Abe and Knox are sort of becoming co-hosts, but we will run out of Star Wars movies to talk about eventually, but we're going to keep that going for a little bit. One of the things that I do want to talk about a little bit more is medicine. I feel like in my very, very tiny audience, I have some people who are more interested in the medicine side than they are in the video game or fantasy novel movie genre. Um, But I also think that talking about medicine is useful in teaching me because obviously I'm still in the process of learning. I feel like anyone who's in medicine is still in the process of learning, but it is really good to talk about these things out loud and sort of uh, nail down some concepts in my head. But now that I'm in uh, my fourth year of medical school, I'm sort of heading towards my intern year where I will be a doctor faster than I can really believe and or faster than I hope. So there is a large amount of clinical medicine that I really haven't dipped my toes into. Um, And that's just mainly because medical school, I think, is used to build the basis for understanding how the body works and understanding or learning about the different pathologies that can go wrong. And then as you increase throughout your medical school years, you learn more about how to treat and how to take care of it. And then when you get in residency, that's when you really start um, learning about treatment methodologies and how to sort of make decisions as a doctor. If there's one thing that you can take away from this, it's that medicine is always changing and there's always new things to use and there's always um, things to unlearn. Now, the obvious disclaimer that I should put in all of my podcasts is that if you actually have a problem, you should not be using this podcast as a reference for what to do next. Obviously, if you have been Uh, let's say, attacked by a wild boar while hunting and you have a uh, sizable gash in your thigh, I would not consult the Hello There podcast for your medical advice. I would uh, transport yourself as quickly as you could to the emergency room to have that taken care of. But today I will be talking a little bit more about some clinical medicine, maybe not anything that's relevant for people who aren't actually practicing medicine But it is an interesting topic about how medicine works and how it is constantly changing. I'm also thinking about doing a format in the podcast where I break up the show into multiple segments. Now, these would be the ones, obviously, where I'm doing them solo, the episodes where I'm doing them with guests or with friends and or my co-host, Abe and Knox. Um, those will be more focused around one topic, but I've been thinking about doing sort of maybe the first half of my podcast being more medical related. And then the second half either being like book recommendations and, or what game I'm playing right now and sort of discussions about games and stuff towards the latter half. So if you only want to listen to the medical part, you could just stop halfway. Or if you want to listen to the gaming part, you could skip halfway through the podcast when I start talking about it. I don't know. We'll see how things go. Um, I think that would be a really interesting way to do the show but I do like the idea of having various segments where I focus on one topic at a time. I need to work on my intros as well. I feel like they kind of drag out for a little bit. So specifically for the beginning of this episode I'm debating on whether or not I'm going to talk about some gaming things, gaming related topics towards the latter half. Um, 
I was on nephrology for the last two weeks, and now I'm on hematology, oncology. So nephrology is kidney doctors. Um, they deal with chronic kidney disease, which can be due to multiple things, autoimmune disorders, diabetes, and they also deal with patients who have hypertension that is very difficult to treat because the kidneys have a lot of properties that either lead to hypertension or can be utilized to prevent hypertension. One of the things that's interesting about medicine is that someone will come out with a drug and they'll discover all of these other properties that are useful for the drug. So one of the drugs I always think of is the statin class, and these are lipid-lowering drugs, but they also have cardioprotective uh, properties as well as uh, stroke-preventative measures. They, they kind of have a big area that they help, and um, there's this calculator that you can type in the different properties of the patient that they have, their age and their blood pressure and things like that, and it'll tell you their risk of a cardiovascular event, and if it's over 10%, then you want to start them on a, a statin, um, but I don't think that the statins were necessarily designed for those specific cardioprotective measures. It was more just designed to uh, decrease your cholesterol, which you could argue does eventually impact your cardiovascular health, but there is this new, relatively new type of drug that's called the Flozin, or the class is called the Flozins. Um, and I learned about these in school. You know, we learned about drugs just sort of as a broad, you know, you don't necessarily learn about the history of the drug or how long the drug has been out. I mean, we kind of talk about, oh, this is somewhat of a newer drug, but it's hard to sort of, when you step into the clinical setting to realize, oh, we don't use these drugs anymore because they're too old, or we're just starting to use these that you just learned about. For me, it's like they're all kind of the same because I learned about them all at the same time. But I was talking to my dad specifically about these flozins because the nephrologist that I was working with was saying how this is a drug that was created to help with diabetes, but the nephrologists have sort of taken hold of it because it also helps with chronic kidney disease and various other pathologies such as heart failure or hypertension. So my father, who is a family practice doctor, was asking, Do, does he use these drugs in patients who don't have diabetes? So the SGLT2 inhibitors I got to get that right. The SGLT2 inhibitors. Yeah, I got it right. These drugs prevent resorption of glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidneys, which I guess I should say of the nephron, which the nephrons make up a lot of the kidney. There's millions of nephrons. I've talked about this before, but it's pretty complicated. Anyway, they basically cause you to pee out glucose. So the thought was, or thought still is to some extent, that if you have high blood sugars that you take this drug, it blocks the reabsorption of glucose. You pee out glucose, therefore it should lower your blood glucose. The nephrologist I was working with said that, um, and I haven't like checked this by looking up, but I, I believe him because this is what he does for a living. He said that they were finding that there was roughly a 1% decrease in the hemoglobin A1c. So the hemoglobin A1c is a tool that we use to determine if a patient's blood glucose is chronically elevated. So if it's over 7, then they have type 2 diabetes, and they were finding that these SGLT2 inhibitors, I should just start calling them the flozins because that's the sort of generic name for, it's the tag end of the name. 
I guess it's the pref. No, it's the suffix. Man, I should like use real words. Today I was in a clinic with a hematologist, and he asked me. This is sort of a tangent, but he asked me, "What would you see on a patient's lab if they had hemolytic anemia?" Which that would mean that their red blood cells were lysing. So I said, "You would have elevated bilirubin." And then he said. Well, how would you say that like a doctor? And I said they would have hyperbilirubinemia. And he was like, okay, now how would you say that even more like a doctor? And then I paused for a second and he sort of clarified saying, what kind of hyperbilirubinemia? And then I was like, oh, if it's an extrinsic hemolytic anemia, it's going to be unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And he was like, yes, or indirect hyperbilirubinemia. So I say all this just to point out that learning the language of the medical profession is one of the hardest things to sort of wrap your mind around when you first enter into it. And uh, I think that's something you really have to learn later when you're writing more. Right now, I'm not writing a ton of notes, um, but when you write notes, you have to write in medical terms. And so I just kind of got on a tangent about saying the right things. A lot of the times I say these phrases or I reference something medical and I use really dumbed down language, not to try to dumb it down just because my brain is thinking of it simply where I should be thinking of it from a more medical perspective. Anyway, flozins, those are the SGLT2 inhibitors and they have prefixes, that's the right word, that you know sort of determines which of the brands it is. And then there's different names for the brand name because the brand names are a little bit more friendly than epagoniflozin or whatever the name of the drug is. Anyway, so as they were using these drugs to decrease the patient's blood glucose, they were also finding that because it was functioning as a diuretic, it was also helping decrease blood pressure and what the nephrologists were finding that it was helping to prevent the progression of kidney failure, which was not the original intention of the drug. So your kidney function is monitored by a measurement that's called your GFR or your glomerular filtration rate. And that's the amount of blood that your kidneys filter Per minute. So a normal GFR is 100. Um, so you'd be filtering 100 milliliters of blood per minute. And there are uh, different stages of kidney disease from 1 to 5. 3 has 2, so you have 3A and 3B. And uh, family practice doctors, primary care doctors, they use that to measure kidney function. And then at a certain point, they also, um, if it gets so far, they would might refer them to a nephrologist to help with uh, their kidney function or to help stop their uh, kidney function from decreasing. Now, one of the things that I heard a lot on my two weeks of nephrology was that when you turn 40, that's about when your uh, GFR starts to decrease by 1% every year. So everyone as they age has a decrease in their kidney function slowly over time. So it's not unusual for an older person to have a lower GFR just because, you know, we all get older and our bodies change and they don't work as well as we'd like. And that's something that you need to account for when you have patients that are older. So back to my father's previous question that, you know, do these, are these nephrologists using these SGLT2 inhibitors in patients that don't have diabetes? So I asked um, the doctor I was with and he printed me out two articles 
uh, both from the New England Journal of Medicine. One was about the cardiovascular and renal outcomes of patients in heart failure uh, using one of these flozins, and then the other one was about uh, patients with chronic kidney disease. And these are relatively new studies. Um, I have them in front of me. He printed them out for me. So these, oh, I guess they both came out on the same day. That's interesting. Um, October 8th, 2020. So uh, not even a year old, which in terms of medicine, medicine takes a long time to sort of change. And I don't say this from any area of expertise. This is something my father has told me consistently, as long as I can remember that medicine takes a very long time to change because you have a group of people that are doing something the same way for many years and then something changes and it takes kind of a while before that thing becomes mainstream or not not necessarily mainstream, but it becomes more widely practiced. I'm not going to get into the topic of FDA approval because I really don't quite understand how it works because drugs can be used for different reasons, even if they're not FDA approved for that. Um, but I really don't know very much about that. I'm not not an expert on the FDA. When I hear of the FDA, it just makes my mind go blank because it makes me think of boardroom meetings and long PowerPoints with nothing but text that are pages and slides and slides and anyway so the first article was about cardiovascular and renal outcomes and what they found was and me like i made this joke before but i feel like gandalf digging through the archives of uh minus tirith searching for the answers about the one ring um but this was pretty easy because the nephrologist printed out these articles and gave them to me but I recently took step two, and fortunately I passed. I think I mentioned that. And one of the things that we had to learn for step two was uh, a significant amount of statistics in order to understand if a study is statistically significant or, you know, when they give you a hazard ratio, what it means. So for this one, what they found was that patients who were on one of these flozins had a hazard ratio of 0.75 in terms of cardiovascular death or hospitalizations, and the confidence interval of 95% was 0.65 to 0.86. So basically, the hazard ratio being under 1 means that the patients who took the flozin had less cardiovascular deaths and or hospitalizations due to heart failure exacerbations and then that confidence interval is just saying that it was a statistically significant result and this was a big study too uh, let's see it was 3730 patients so half of those patients roughly got placebo and half of those got the flozin now also these patients had to be they're being treated for their heart failure with other medications as well. You know, it's not like they take them off all medications and they only give them these flozins. It's they're being treated with their other medications along with um, this this extra drug. And then they're sort of comparing this is the standard of care, the control group versus this is this new drug. And so they found that there was a significant um, decrease in the amount of adverse effects due to their heart failure using this drug. And they also found that using these, and this was just a secondary outcome of the study, that using these SGLT2 inhibitors also decreased the rate at which the kidneys were damaged. And that was also statistically significant. So, um, and another important thing that I should mention is that 
not all of the patients had diabetes. So half of the patients had diabetes and half of them didn't. It was a double blind trial. So they just, you know, split them up randomly. It wasn't like they chose which patients got the drugs and which patients didn't. It was a double blind study. So basically what that was saying was that we saw the effects of improving uh, patients with heart failures outcomes, even if they didn't have diabetes, which this SGLT2 inhibitor was made for patients with diabetes. Then the second uh, article that he gave me was about um, patients with chronic kidney disease. Sorry, I'm like shuffling these papers around trying to look at them. And this was a similar size study, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't done by the same people. There's like 15 names on here, and they don't look the same, but they're probably, there might be some crossover. Again, don't quote me on that. Um, and so similar study, they had a 4,304 participants, and they were specifically looking at uh, the patients who had chronic kidney disease. And what they found was that this, they say that, um, this is a quote from the paper, that the monitoring committee recommended stopping the trial because of the efficacy. So basically they said, you know, we should just stop this trial because the patients are doing so well that it's, it's almost wrong for us to not give this drug out to people who have chronic kidney disease. And again, I don't know how the monitoring committee functions. This is very academic, these uh, researchers and these doctors that do this. I... I am not well-versed in that, but, you know, I can read the study, and they say, with, they give you all the p-intervals and all that, and it was a statistically significant improvement in patients with chronic kidney disease, even if they didn't have diabetes. So basically, what this nephrologist was telling me was that these two studies came out about a year ago, and they're showing that these SGLT2 inhibitors have excellent use apart outside of diabetes which is interesting because you know when i learned about them i learned about them as just a diabetes drug and that's sort of what they're marketed as but i that could have changed in the future you know due to these two studies i don't know how long it takes for things to you know before a drug gets marketed to be used for various other things um again that is in the realm of business research medicine that i have no expertise on whatsoever not that i really have an expertise on anything but maybe one day now after the break i'm going to talk about uh some video games that i've been playing and or a video game that i've been playing specifically so if you have no interest in that feel free to turn the podcast off and in the description of the podcast i'm going to put the timestamp for when i actually start talking about video games i mean sure you could be fascinated with flozens but i'll be right back Welcome back. I started playing Skyrim again. I haven't really played Skyrim that much. It's one of those games that everyone sort of talks about, says is the greatest game ever. Um, I think it's kind of come in fashion in the last four or five years to sort of talk about how it wasn't that great, or there are aspects of the game that were sort of dumbed down for a larger audience, and it sort of kind of pulled away from the, uh, let's say the original Elder Scrolls games. Now, the only I, I only have experience with Skyrim. I don't really have any experience. I have no experience with the prior games. Oblivion came before that. That was four Elder Scrolls four. Skyrim is Elder Scrolls five, and then pr before that was uh, Elder Scrolls Morrowind. And I think that 
the true hardcore fans say that Tomorrowind is probably the best, but there is definitely a lot of jank when it comes to Morrowind, just based on how old it is. Anyway, needless to say, I was sort of thinking about doing an episode on Skyrim and whether or not it holds up or whether or not I actually like it because I've played it. I've started it multiple times. I've never really... I've put in, you know, a decent amount of hours, but it's Skyrim. It's kind of easy to put in a lot of hours, but never finished the whole story. Um, I kind of stopped. I felt like I stopped a lot of my characters halfway through. I ended up sort of playing the same type of character every time. There's a video on YouTube that I have yet to watch, but I've kind of seen it pop up in my recommended about why everyone chooses to play as a sneaky archer in Skyrim. Um, I need to go watch it to see why. Um, The combat in Skyrim is probably its weakest point i would say i mean it could be argued anyone could say it's you know the potion making is the weakest point i I don't know but the combat is not great everyone kind of knows that the combat in elder scrolls games has never been uh something that stands out very much needless to say i was playing as a thief i always play as a thief i've played i've started the game roughly three times in the last 10 years ever since it came out and i play as a thief for a bit i always do the thieves guilds quest and it something about the sneaking and the shooting with the arch or the bow and stabbing people in the back and those kind of uh that kind of gameplay seemed the most fun uh the the rushing ahead combat with a two-handed sword it's just it doesn't feel very good um and there is something satisfying to sneaking up on someone and having a six times attack bonus if you stab them in the back with the sword or whatever so while I was playing this, I had put in a few more hours and with a new character kind of starting all over again. And I thought to myself, why don't I play in a game that's actually made to be a sneaky thief game and kind of see what it is about Skyrim that I like or don't like and what it is about sneaky thief games that I like. And I've had the game Dishonored 2. I played the first Dishonored. Now, you want to get into all the video game business companies developing studios thing you can uh bethesda is the company that makes the elder scrolls games they are the bethesda is is a is a company that owns multiple game studios and but they also have a game developing studio bethesda is like sort of their main thing they make the fallout games they make the uh, elder scrolls games now bethesda also owns multiple different game development studios now while these game studios are owned by bethesda they are not necessarily uh run by bethesda or their uh, game development has nothing to do with the same teams that make the Elder Scrolls or the Fallout games. So there's a studio that is called Arcane Studios, and they're the ones that created uh, Dishonored. Um, They came out with a game back in early 2000s called, I want to say, Might and Magic Dark Messiah, um, and it's sort of an action RPG, and I actually want to go back and play that after I've sort of learned a little bit more about Arcane. And then they dabble around with a lot of different projects over the last, or over the 10 years after they came out with that game. Then they were finally bought by Bethesda and they came out with Dishonored and uh, Dishonored did really well. So they made a game called Prey, which I still have yet to play Prey, but I want to. And then they came out with Dishonored 2. Now Dishonored 2, I don't think did very well. Uh, Part of the reasons were that when it came out, it really ran poorly, especially on the PC. It didn't have a good launch. Now I, I was not aware of when Dishonored 2 came out. I had played the first one and enjoyed it. 
Um, but when Dishonored 2 came out, uh, I was, I don't know what I was doing. I, I probably was in the woods or something and I just completely forgot about it. And then about a year ago, um, I saw it on Amazon for like, and this was back when I actually used Amazon uh, not declutter. Hey, if you want to sponsor declutter, I'd gladly sponsor you. Um, I saw it for like five bucks on Amazon and I said, Hey, I'll, I might as well get that. I liked the first game. And I played like maybe the first two levels and I, I didn't really get into it. I don't know why. I think I just didn't, uh, you know, you got to play a game for a little bit. You got to invest in it before you can figure out if it grabs you or not. Anyway, this is a long explanation. So I started playing this Dishonored game and it really blew me away. Uh, I was really impressed. Now, I know that a bunch of patches have come out since its release and the stability of the PlayStation 4 version and the PC version uh, has improved drastically since uh, compared to when it came out. But this was a game I had really hadn't heard anything about. Like, I remember when it came out, I remember people saying, yeah, this is a pretty good game, but uh, it really surprised me. Now, Dishonored is an interesting game because it's a stealth action game. You play as a thief slash assassin, mostly assassin that steals things, not really a thief that assassinates people. Um, I don't know if it's just the way that the presentation of the game, I didn't follow the story. I don't really care about the story. So, some games I do, but for the most part, I think I really play games for the gameplay. I'd have to go and do a, I think I should do an episode on story versus gameplay in video games. That would kind of be an interesting discussion. I should have probably someone on to talk about that because there are games out there with fantastic stories this is not one but the gameplay is what makes the game good now uh, this is also nothing like skyrim it it is similar to skyrim in the fact that it's a first person game with first person combat but uh, skyrim is an open world game where you go out and find quests whereas dishonored is a level based game where each level is sort of a sandbox um, with multiple different things that you can do in it with an ultimate end goal um, but there are multiple ways that you can achieve that goal um, i've sort of been interested in this type of gameplay for quite a while the technical genre is uh, the immersive sim genre and the immersive sim genre has been around for quite a while it's sort of older and it's sort of coming back into style and the more i read about it and the more i learn about it i hope it really does I think the Deus Ex game, the first one, um, is sort of the one of the classics, the System Shock games, System Shock 1 and 2, and then um, Bioshock is a little bit of a immersive sim light, uh, and then there's there's multiple other games that uh, have this quality, and, and the, the thing about an immersive sim is that generally that you can solve problems using multiple different uh, solutions. There's not just one answer, and the and the levels are generally, like I said, these sandboxes where you can kind of figure out what to do uh, and kind of pick the way that you want. So kind of the big thing in Dishonored is, like a lot of games, it has a morality system. There's sort of a high chaos or low chaos mode that you can play in. Um, and one, the high chaos would be you kind of kill everyone. And then the low chaos mode is that you don't kill anyone. Um, you can even play the game and try to play so that you don't get seen by anyone. Uh, I, I didn't do that. The I always play uh, low chaos because, I don't know, I'm, I can't ever play as the bad guy. It's hard for me to play as the bad guy. But uh, I rarely replay games, but I, I replayed Dishonor immediately after, Dishonor 2 immediately after I finished it. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. So uh, this game 
generally what you do is you're put in a level and your goal is to either assassinate a target or get rid of a target somehow and you don't you don't have to kill them i think in every single level there's a non-lethal way to take care of the uh opponent or the target um in one example uh there's this sort of evil scientist guy who's creating all of these robots that are being used to sort of take over this this land or whatever this this uh, you know the politics and all that of the game i i really just i really didn't get into the story that much i was just in for the gameplay but well you can either kill him which is kind of the easy thing to do or you can use one of his machines to sort of erase his erase his memory so that he can't use his knowledge to sort of make all these this technology that's um you know wreaking havoc on the kingdom of dunwall or whatever now, in retrospect, I should have played with the uh, quest markers turned off because there, there's no map in the game, which it's kind of a fancy trend to talk about how mini maps are the worst thing ever because you spend your whole time staring at the mini map, which I completely agree with. So I haven't quite yet done a podcast on that because I feel like that's a pretty common thing that people talk about. But this game, you don't have a mini map, so you kind of got to learn the level just by exploring it. Um, but it does have quest markers, and it does give you the option to turn them off. I didn't. I probably should have, but it definitely would have taken me longer to beat the game if I hadn't turned them off. So needless to say, I had a lot of fun with the the level design. I just think it was very underrated in terms of its creativity. Now, this game is cool, too, because you get to choose to play as uh, Corvo, who's the Corvo Atana, who's the main character of the first game, or you can play as his daughter, who in the first game you are uh, rescuing her and she's very little and it's been 15 years in the second game. So she and you've trained her and she gets these magical powers uh, at the start of the game and and you get the magical powers uh, at the start of the first game and and sort of it kind of goes from there and you're it's like a sort of a revenge story or whatever but at the beginning of the game you get to choose who you play as so i played as emily because i had played the first game as corvo and i was used to his power so i wanted to, you know i wanted to see um what his sort of tool or what her sort of toolkit was um so she has different abilities like the ability to sort of grapple up to different areas high points she can like create duplicates of herself so that the guards will chase after the duplicate and you can sneak by um trying to think what other ones there's like a shadow walk where you can kind of turn into a shadow and sneak past guards uh there's another cool one where you can link guards together it's called domino so you link them together uh, by using your magic and then if you uh shoot one with a sleep dart then say you linked three guys they all three would pass out as opposed to just that one that you shot so there's a lot of cool things you can do with that um, I played it uh, with Emily non-lethally. I killed a few people, but most most of the time I, I didn't kill anyone. You can sort of sneak up behind guys and choke them out or stab them. Um, there's really no difference because the once you knock a guard out, they're unconscious for the entirety of the uh, level, which uh, I feel like they it might have made it too hard um, if, if they would wake up. But um, either way, you know, you can decide to kill. It's faster to kill them. It's easier to kill them. They make killing... Uh, the easier thing to do but you also make more noise and you alert more people and stuff like that so th there's a lot of different ways that you can play um, like I didn't even figure out till the end of my second playthrough that uh, you get a crossbow and you have sleep darts but you also have regular crossbow bolts that can kill people but you can shoot someone in the leg with the crossbow and instead of killing them they'll fall on the ground and then you can walk over to them and knock them out and I thought that was really cool because it does give you a lot of options uh, without limiting you to just choking guys out or just using sleep darts. So one of the things that really, uh, I just thought it was a really cool aspect of the game was I got to like the fifth or sixth level 
and um, you're trying to break into this guy's mansion and he had this elaborate lock uh, installed on his in the entrance to his palace or whatever. And it's been three years since anyone's seen this guy. They don't even know if he's alive and they, and no one has been able to break this lock. Now there are multiple ways that you could get into the, get into his palace. But one of the ways is it's a simple way is that you break the lock by figuring out the riddle that um, is given to you about how to solve this puzzle in order to open the door. So the door has, um, five different names that you can sort of cycle between and then five different objects like a snuff box a metal like a like a war metal a diamond a ring and then um something else i forget what the the, a, a bird pendant or whatever and then there's a riddle that uh sort of tells the story about these five ladies and they all have different names and so that's the names on top and then it wants you to match which item they have. And so at first I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy. But the riddle, um, it gives different categories. So like these these five women go to this uh, like lunch party and they're all wearing a different colored um, dress or hat or something. And they all have different objects. And it's this super elaborate uh, riddle that's about two paragraphs. And so I'm sort of, I got out a piece of paper and I was writing it up and I, I could not figure it out. And I was kind of, you know, piecing it together a little bit. I couldn't get the order that they were seated in. And uh, so Natalie had just come home from, I think she went to the grocery store. It was on a Saturday. And I was like, hey, Natalie, can you help me with this? And she was like, what are you talking about? You know, she doesn't really have any interest in video games. And I was like, there's this riddle in this game. And I'm trying to figure it out without doing the rest of the level. And so she sat down and then we read it. And then we started writing things out. And it took us about 20 minutes. But we kind of created this logic table. And we figured out this this puzzle. And we punched it into the door. And it opened. And you basically could skip the entire level by figuring out that uh, riddle. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And what's super cool is that the way that the developers designed it was that the riddle is interchangeable so every time you play the game it's a different solution so you can't just go online and type and look up the answer you have to actually figure it out now there is a pattern to it but you'd have to have someone explain to you how to figure out the pattern so i think on the playstation uh the PlayStation has the trophies and you get a trophy if you unlock the door using the riddle. I think only 7% of people had actually figured out the riddle. Um, but I thought that was a really cool aspect to the game. That's just one part of the game. And uh, I, I, there were so many moments like that in this game and I really recommend it. Now I've replayed it instantly after I beat it and I played as Corvo, but this time you get, when you play, you get the option to accept the superpowers. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. So I basically sped through the game playing high chaos, but I didn't have any special powers. So one of the powers that Corvo has is it's called Blink, and you can teleport. So you can teleport up to high places and ledges and roofs and things like that. And I didn't have any of these. And I played the whole game without any powers. And when I beat it again, because now I kind of knew what to do, it took me a lot less time. And I didn't, I wasn't as meticulous about collecting things. Um, it... I think only 4% of people have beat the game not using powers. So that was a really fun thing. But I could also play it uh, with Corvo and try to do a like stealth run where no one sees me. There's multiple ways you can play it. Great, great game. I really enjoyed it. I would really recommend it to anyone who has a PlayStation or Xbox or computer that can run it.
but it really got me thinking about level design and about um, immersive sims and about why I play the games that I do. I kind of talked a little bit about that in my last episode, but I think I'm going to wrap the episode up here. There's a lot more to talk about when it comes to Arcane Studios, when it comes to immersive sims, when it comes to the types of games that I've sort of been gravitating to recently. Um, If you have any questions, Remember, you can email me at maximumpodcast at gmail.com. My next episode should be with Abe and Knox. We're going to do episode three, uh, Revenge of the Sith. Probably one of my favorite Star Wars movies. I know, you know, it's one of the prequels, but really enjoy it. Um, We're planning to do that in a few days. Um, I have plans to do an episode on the Witcher series. And um, I also have plans to do a review of Monster Hunter Rise, which came out a few months ago, but I got to organize that with some guys I want to do the review with. So a lot of things on the horizon. Um, I'm super excited about the direction of this podcast. um, And uh, thanks for listening. 